Hello there, everybody. Good day. <clears throat> Thank you all, and welcome. It is a pleasure to have you back <laughs> for another episode of Merge Worlds, my Dungeons & Dragons story campaign adventure podcast. That flowed pretty well today. I think I'm going to stick with that one. <laughs> Thank you for coming back and let me tell my tale. I'm uh, <clears throat> saying hi and petting my kitty at the same time. I haven't seen him all day. I had to visit right before the stream. Um... So, of course, it's been two weeks since the last episode, and today we will be continuing our tale. Um, last week's, or last episode, was focused heavily on Artis, <clears throat> Maeve, <clears throat> excuse me, Ran, and Dandy's side of the adventure, and today we'll be stepping back into Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen, telling the next step of their part of the tale. Hello, Mr. Turtle. Good day, sir. So... We are back in Seraph's side of the story. Um, I do keep getting regular questions about when the two groups will join back up. <clears throat> and my response is always, I guess we'll see. <laughs> because, you know, I don't give nothing away. I'm sneaky like that. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> so we'll just do a brief recap of where Seraph and them left off. We'll move on forward. So... Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen traveled southeast in the hopes of catching up with Dina. Love interest. Uh, he knew she's in danger. They're running from something. Not sure exactly <clears throat> who or what at this point. Hello, MT. Um, they went to uh, they went south and around uh, New Gully, which is the dead magic area that Mugen comes from to the approximate location where Mugen says Dina would have left on their journey southeast to Arduel. There, <clears throat> Deacon cast a spell on an item of hers. It was a, a hair barrette that allows them to know her path. Um, they can see basically a line that goes in a certain direction. Hello, codename. And... That works well until they get into areas where there's a large amount of people, like a major city. <clears throat> the spell has a harder time finding her path, uh, way she went in those situations. Now, when I say path, like literally it's saying she went this way. It doesn't say when or how long ago, whether she was alone. It just says the direction that she went. Get into a major city, it's just too many people for it to kind of fish through. It's not a super strong spell. But it is useful, and it is permanent on that item, which is pretty nice. Until returned to the owner. Once the owner takes ownership of the item again, the spell is, is dispelled. So they uh, headed southeast, had a little adventure or two on their way. But eventually made it to the city of Arduel. Arduel's popped up in our story many, many times throughout Merge World's Adventures. Uh, it is the city... Um, of King Christopher, Christopher Worm's blood. Christopher was the very first real city ever pop up in Merged World. Way back when Zoltan gave the, the very first real quest to find the magic items to Mercy and Darsh and all of them, opened up a portal that sent them to Arduel. <clears throat> and once there, they saved Prince Christopher from the castle's dungeons where there had been 
I don't call it, I guess it's not a mutiny, but you know what I mean? Uh, the equivalent of land mutiny, <laughs> whatever that is. Sometimes. And um, where they had, parent father had been killed and been taken over by a uncle or friend of the family that was a mage. Chris Christopher popped in there uh, at that point, once they defeated him, was made king again uh, and provided them the first magic weapon. The quest was in the treasury. And they then went from that point on, so on and so forth. And it is a major uh, part of the southern kingdoms. <clears throat> it is the closest city to Darshtopia, where it's Darsh's islands, uh, it's smack in the middle of Paxawal and Santriel, the elven kingdom. So, a very, a coup. Thank you very much, MT. I appreciate that. A coup, that's correct. It was very centralized in physical location. Hello, Rose. Um, I know we talk about Paxawal a lot because Paxawal is the largest main city in the storyline. Um, and it's, it and RUL, I mean, if you look at it, are relatively centered because to the west, it has to be west, for the west of Paxawal is Thoramon, and then northwest of that is uh, Oramon. So Paxawal and RUL are side by side. It's just a recap. I'm catching you guys up. And then to the east of the Santriel, the Elven Kingdom, the east of that is Coromon, furthest of the southern kingdoms. That's the Dwarven Kingdom. So not a lot has happened past that. There was a little bit of adventure. You remember uh, Darsh and crew and everybody went that direction when they were trying to help free the Sea Elves in one of their last adventures. Later adventures. They stopped at a small town in that direction, um, which we may see again. But any real further east of that, well, we've never really touched on in this southern section. If you go way up north and then way east, you've got Darkmoor and where well, they fought Draven's brother and all that business. But way down here in the south where they're at, um, they've never been quite around further than Corman very much. So they know that... The Dina's plan or plot where they're taking Dina, as far as they know, they, they believe that she's being headed, taken eastwards. So they arrived in Arduel and spent some time there investigating, trying to find her. Deacon reached out to the Mage Tower, searched, but they couldn't find any real clues. Then they realized one evening in the inn that they were being watched. So, very sneakily and carefully, they snuck out a back window and followed that person outside the city through a secret passage wall that. Allowed them to, or see passageway that let them through the city walls and chase them way outside the city. When they got out there, they were attacked by Oromanian elites. Well, you know, are the elite warriors of the Oromon country. Always come in pairs. Very deadly. Don't talk. So Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen were forced to fight them. They had also with them a cleric who appeared to be music, magic items and maybe even some spells that are more commonly found used by mages. And that's an important point because clerics and mages have very different spells, at least in second edition and in Merge Worlds. It's a very solid line between the two of them. Um, not some, they have a few spells that overlap, detect evil. Um, detect magic. But, you know, there's not a lot of that. 
So it's odd that that happened. During that battle, the cleric with some mage abilities was tossing spells at them, and several of those spells struck Little Mugen, who, as we know, is a half-gully, half-gnome, grew up in New Gully, son of Fig. And the spells had little to, new, to no effect on him. He was confused by what the person was doing, because, of course, he's never really seen magic. Magic doesn't exist in the dead magic. And uh, finally, the mage was casting something much larger, so Mugen pulled out his flintlock revolver and, for all intents and purposes, shot the man in the face, uh, killing him instantaneously. It was after that the elites were taken down that another group of men came in and again drew weapons on them. There was a exchange, and it was discovered that these were part of Oromon's um, rebellion, the ones that were helping to look and guide Dina to safety. Hello, Michael. Oh, Rose says, play DD for the second time in two days. It's a ton of fun. I love DD. I can't get enough of it. <laughs> Hello, Michael. So, the leader of this group of revolutionaries. Rebels, I guess. Rebels probably be the best way to uh, Was named Wallace. Once he truly believed that Seraph was who he claimed to be, basically said, well, well, let's go. Come with me. Seraph's like, well, why should I follow you? He goes, because Dina left you a letter and I've got it. And that's kind of where we left off with Seraph's tale. Um, well, a month ago at this point, right? Every two weeks. My goodness. Hello, Miss Ashley. I'm here. Sorry, YouTube wouldn't let me chat, but you fixed it. Hey, well, welcome back. <laughs> um, so that is the uh, kind of a recap of where we've left off. Now, if you've been following Merged Worlds for a while, uh, I can tell you very quickly into the story, we're going to be talking about some things that you know, and that people back in Serenity very likely know, but that Seraph does not. And it's information that will potentially change everything for the future. Today will be a whole lot of chat and potentially the inter introduction of an interesting character in Merge World. Someone who's not popped up before but could have an effect, maybe not so much on these guys right now, but potentially uh, some future issues. I just like it when I have a chance to introduce somebody I've been planning for a while, so blah, blah, blah. I'll enjoy that. Um, but let me begin here at the beginning by saying thank you very much for coming by and listening. If you're here, checking out the stream on YouTube, um, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind giving this video a like. Uh, it makes a huge difference. Something as simple as clicking like really, really does help out the video and the channel. Um, and if you're new here, be sure to subscribe. Uh, if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, this is available on there as a free audio podcast. Uh, or if you're thinking about potentially do that, it would also be awesome if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us a follow on there. Give the five stars, the reviews, the whatever. Uh, again, it would very, very much help out the podcast. It doesn't cost you anything to do any of that, so it would be great if you would. And hello, the gamer 18 Welcome. All right. So let's see. Um, let's see. So I'm going to start off with just a little bit of reading, right? This will take a couple minutes. This is the introduction of how we're going to get into the story. I'll be breaking in and into that occasionally to, to go into more detail. But And if I cough a bunch, I apologize. I'm still trying to get over COVID. I'll be popping a lot of lozenges today. So again, the last thing that happened, with these guys, they went off with Wallace to find out what was, what was going on. So Wallace leads them down some stairs. 
Um, to what again? This was a ruins, if you remember. This ruins with, with some paths in it, and this forest and bushes and all that stuff around there. It's almost like a park, really. And the ruins look relatively well traveled. They seem well cared for. Um, and that's because this is a historical site to RUL. Not something we're getting into detail now because it's not that important. But it is basically the remnants of the original castle of RUL. And so it is, as a historic place, it's well cared for. People, you know, there's guards that patrol it, make sure nobody vandalizes it. So people can come in and look at the ruins and stuff, walk the gardens, so on and so forth, whenever they like. So the area seems well tended. Uh, when they take leads them down the stairs into what was clearly an old chamber, you know, some kind. There's not much in there now. It's just empty. He once again, op- uh, Wallace goes to a part of the wall, pressing on a couple places, opens up yet another secret door. I know this secret door is probably not well known to the populace, but it's known to Wallace and his group of rebels. Um. We'll go into detail as to why in a little bit, but it's interesting when you think of it. Why are there Oromanian rebels in Arduel, which is like a thousand or a couple thousand miles away? It's a huge distance, probably even further than that. Um, but Arduel rebels are hanging out in Arduel, or sorry, Oromanian rebels are hanging out in Arduel. Two A words, I'll try not to stumble. Um, so they go inside, take them in, and that's kind of where we would have left off. So I'm going to do a little bit of reading. Seraph could only sit there in silence, stunned by what he'd just been told. So, Dina is a princess? Asked Mugen. It would seem so, my friend, replied Deacon, obviously flustered as well. Of the darkest nation in the entire known world. Which is true. Oromon is known to be just a home of bad people. Turds, if you will. Um, the emperor uh, was a thorn in the side of serenity, mercy specifically, for a very long time. If you remember, it was mercy that defeated them. What is it, Buffy? Well, thank you for the pets. Can you give me a poke? You guys would give me just one quick second. I apologize. One second. I don't know why, but I can put a, buff, a, tr- a little bowl of Buffy's treats five feet from her face, and she won't see it if I don't shake it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so, um, Ormon, the Emperor, lots of bad stuff, right? And so, you know, Deacon's saying, too, it's, it's true. She's, we're being told she's the princess of what is known as the darkest nation in the known world. Because, again massive world merged worlds, right? They've not seen 95% of it at this point. I'll admit the actions of Ormon have been quite evil in the past, said Wallace. But the majority of our kin are good people. For 20 years we fought for our freedom, fought against the cult of Pandora's influence. The rebellion is finally winning. A rebellion made possible by your Queen Mercy. Though... Sadly, recent news from the capital has not been good. What news is that? asked Deacon. He hadn't. Okay. What's going on in Ormon over the last at least 15, 16 years has been almost a civil war. I've touched upon that several times, um, it, even in the earlier adventures. Uh, ever since Mercy and Artemis and friends, but Mercy primarily, 
uh, killed the Emperor of Oromon, left them without a leader, the factions and such within the city have been at war. Been less and less refugees leaving, coming towards Serendi, which has always been a way for them to escape in the past, and less and less news comes out of the city, uh, which is troubling, of course, for all the cities outside, because they're like, well, Ormond's a kingdom we've had problems with in the past. Or in the past, does this something mean that problems are coming, or are they just too busy for us to find anything out? Deacon, being the son of King Firemoon, a prince, would also be made aware of those type of information, especially through his father, as one who's destined to rule one day, right? Makes sense that he'd be, he'd know a lot about Oromon and, and so on and so forth. So he asks, what news is that? Wallace continues, Oromon is broken into three factions. The rebellion, those who fight to free all citizens and create a land where all may be treated as equal. Faction that we are proud to be a part of. The second is the clergy, the cult of Pandora, who ruled Oromon for generations. The day Mercy Harriton took that bastard's life, the clergy was dealt a mighty blow. Lomar has not been seen since. And with the vacuum created by their two leaders lost, the clergy fought amongst themselves for control, uh, which allowed for the rebellion time it needed to gain a foothold and make great gains. Again, Mercy killed the Emperor, Ormon, Artemis was there helping. And Lomar, you'll remember, Lomar of the Nine was the head priest of the nine main priests of that church and a personal um, advisor to the Emperor. Lomar was not there at that final battle, the Emperor. And in fact, no one has seen him since before that battle had started. Even Mercy information at the time, there were no words of Lomar. He just up and disappeared right before that final battle happened. He was not a part of that, which is surprising. There. <coughs> Excuse me. The third faction is the Merchants Guild, a powerful group of men who fight to maintain Oromon's traditional ways while taking control for themselves. This group is the biggest threat to the rebellion. They are well-funded and willing to do just about anything to gain power. So if you'll remember from Oromon in the past, Oromon is a city that was broken into you know, houses and sections, if you will. Um, but the merchants, who made a large amount of money off of, especially things like slavery and so on and so forth, things that the rebellion are fighting to eliminate, that Mercy was helping to fight to eliminate. That's how they made a lot of their money, was that. And with, you know, money to the oppressed, you know what I mean? Take gambling and all the vices you would expect. All the vices that you would expect how they made a lot of their cash. So with Emperor being gone, well, they still liked the way that kind of worked. They liked the way the city worked in that regard because they were getting rich. It wasn't for the church cutting in on their profits and stuff. So now they get have a chance of best of both worlds. Keep it how it is. We keep making our money without, you know, eliminates church. And now we run the whole thing ourselves. So they're actually a bigger threat than even the the clergy. I say clergy in, in a loose way, because at the time they were known as the church. The rebellion, of course, is always going to view them as the cult. So they're always going to call them the cult of Pandora, whereas those loyal would call it the clergy or the church of Pandora. So you hear me using different words. It's going to be based really on who's saying it. He continues. The news I mentioned, though, speaks of a possible new fourth faction. 
It works in the shadows to corrupt and gain control and power for itself. None know its leader, though many fear it's Lomar himself who may have returned. It is believed it is this new group that hunts Dina. Hearing her name, Seraph looks up from the letter he'd been reading over and over. Hunted? You speak of her as some kind of prize. Wallace looks to Seraph, a sad look on his face. Make no mistake, son. Many of her, many see her as such. She's the only child of Marcus Dawnbringer. Technically, her claim to the throne is stronger than any others. The merchants would never allow a woman to rule. Because you got to get in. This is, a, this is a society for the longest time that has treated women as furniture, second-class citizens, almost slaves themselves. Hello, Moonshine Mason. Welcome, welcome. Again, something that Rebellion is looking to eliminate. The head of the Rebellion was, at least at the time, uh, Yar, who was the Emperor's wife. Uh, so so uh, to, the, to them, she is their greatest threat. Some might want her to come in and be queen. The other group is like, we need her eliminated. We do not need that going on. To the clergy, she could be used to lay claim to power, at least in her name, while making her little more than a prisoner. And as for the new dark force, this fourth mysterious faction, if it is Lomar, who knows how he might try to use her. And what of you, asked Seraph, standing up in anger in his voice, and how would you use her? Does a rebellion seek to use her as a figurehead for their cause as well? All steps closer to Seraph. We want to keep her safe. Her mother was the leader of the rebellion. She gave everything, even her life, to free her people and protect her child. And we owe everything to her. So we will protect Dina, as we would of Tiara. We'll keep her safe from all threats. And, if she should one day choose to return to Oromon, and claim the throne. I can tell you there isn't a man or woman of the rebellion who would willingly lay down their life for her. But that would be her choice, and her choice alone. So he's saying, yeah, 100%, we would totally back that. Hell yeah, we'd love to see her in there. She's out here. From all we know, she's an awesome person, because they would have kept some tabs on her, I'm assuming, right? Somebody's occasionally chatting with Perrin, who's her grandfather, I use finger quotes for that, for those of you listening audio only. Um, she's a good person. Yes, if she wanted to step in and try to do that and become basically the next uh, version of her mother who these people idolized, heck yeah, they would. But at the same time, they idolized and respected her mother. They're fighting to give everyone an equal voice. They would want her to choose that. That's the important thing. They would want her to choose that. Seraph nodded slowly and sat back down. His mind was in turmoil, writhing with everything he'd learned. And even worse, there was a little small voice in the back of his head, filling him with doubts. A princess? Am I worthy of such a person? What in the world could I offer that now anyone in the world would offer? Once again, he read her letter, finding comfort in her words. My dearest Seraph, if you are reading this, then you already know the truth about who I really am, a truth I myself did not know until moments ago. If my grandfather and uncle weren't here telling me it's true, I would have never believed such an insane story. That my parents, again, in this she's referring to the people who raised her, were really two members of the Oromanian rebellion chosen to protect me, 
that my grandfather was in truth the servant of my real mother, and that my father was truly a beast, a servant of evil who caused the deaths and suffering of millions. That's not an exaggeration. He's caused wars, literally. It, millions is accurate. I tell you, it is almost too much to comprehend. Still, in some ways, kind of makes sense. How protective everyone was of me, how well we stayed hidden, moving around, especially in my early years, and how much of Oromon I was taught about as I grew up. You can imagine that, right? <coughs> they maybe can't tell her who she is in real life, but they may want her to know of where she came from. So they would, you know, they teach her about all the kingdoms, which I think would be standard in. But really heavily with Oromon, in her mind, I mean, you know, whether she went to a school or was homeschooled, whatever that case would be, she might just figure that's normal. Everybody knows that much about all the kingdoms. She knows a lot about Oromon, and they were careful to meet that out in a way that didn't seem too obvious. I find myself rambling as I try to make sense of it all. I've been told a ship will arrive tomorrow that will take us far to the east, beyond Corman, and beyond the southern kingdoms. Where this journey will end, I do not know. Seems it is broken into steps, but I'm told we're being taken somewhere where we'll be safe. I don't even know if you'll ever see this letter. Even now you may be in serenity with no knowledge of what has transpired. Still, I shall leave a letter at each place we stop that can be trusted. All who are helping me know of you, and will help you find us if they can. Regardless of where I go or how this ends up, please know that one way or another, I will do my best to try to find a way back to you. I only hope you can see past my devilish ancestry. I promise you, I knew nothing of it. Some little personal stuff. All my love, Dean. Hey, what's up, Paul? Like to share snipes and no spoilers. So, Paul, for those of you who popped in, I, you'll probably hear me mention this on if you've been following these streams uh, or listening to these. You hear me mention Paul a lot. Paul's uh, one of the very first members of my membership program. Has been with me over two years, with me a long time. And Paul watches about dang near everything I put out, but usually a day or two after. Uh, <laughs> at his job, he downloads it all and then watches it while he's at work. Um, so he'll pop in, say, hi, how's it going? I like to share your post, talk to you later and leave. So that way he doesn't get told anything that ruins the story. I love that. He will pop in, snipe a high and then leave like at almost every episode. <laughs> I appreciate that. There, so, yeah. letter ends, probably a couple of little personal things, so on and so forth, but then it ends. All my love, Dina. Seraph rolls up the parchment and tucks it into his vest. Standing, he turns to Wallace and says, Where is she gone? Where have they taken her? Wallace stares at Seraph. His face devoid mostly of emotion, but with a little bit more of a, hmm, kind of a thing. And her parentage? The threats she faces? The dangers of her bloodline? Or that her bloodline will bring her? Are you truly willing to put yourself in the middle of all of that? It is irrelevant replied Seraph. The things you said have no effect on my feelings. You may think you know her, who she is, but I assure you, I know her better than anyone. I'm going to find her to keep her safe. 
Wallace nodded and smiled, put his hand on Sheriff's shoulder. I believe you, son. I will help you any way I can. Though I have to be honest, I have absolutely no idea where she is. Seraph's about like, huh? And he interrupts and begins to explain. This, and this is kind of how we explain. Oh, hello, Jim. I've been listening on your way home. Just made it. Well, <coughs> welcome home, Jim. <laughs> um, so Wallace begins to explain kind of how this is set up. This has been set up for years. They always felt, at least in the known world, Kingdom of Fire Moon was probably the safest place for them. It was one of the furthest Southern Kingdom areas away from Oromon, um, an overwhelmingly beloved and benevolent king who drastically worked to protect his people, uh, a safe haven. There were no wars or anything um, that have come to Fire Moon uh, since the beginning of Merge Worlds. That doesn't mean that he hasn't marched out to whoop some booty to help friends. Like right? He showed up at the uh, Valley of Sacrifice and so on and so forth, but no one's attacked Fire Moon. They don't have any direct enemies at this point. They've been pretty much at peace for the last 20-some years since Merged Worlds has, has, has come to be. It was a very safe place for Dina to be. But, on the off chance someone ever discovered that, backup plans needed to be made. Um, a, keep her safe, because there's so many different people who could use her, who she is, to try to take power, control, or those who would seek her death. Man, I keep coughing. I apologize. Um, so, the way that this was set up, Wallace begins to explain this, that someone, and he doesn't know who, oversaw all of this. Someone's job was to set this up. And there are, the journey, the trip to get her somewhere safe that that person was finding and setting up, was always in the intention of potentially moving her there just anyways, was created in links. Imagine links of a chain. And... You know your link, right? Sig letter comes to you, a, a signal, whatever, gets to you. She's in trouble. We have to get her out of here. You know what you have to do to get her to the next link. You don't know where the links go. You don't, may not know anybody in that link. You may not know anything about the links after that. And why would they do that? Because if someone is truly hunting her and they catch Wallace or whoever, Wallace literally can't be made to tell anything that goes on beyond that. So even what little information you have, I mean, because there's always going to be a little info that could be dangerous, but keep it to a very bare minimum. Because if you'll remember, Horamon loves torture, and they will do just about anything to get what they want. Mercy and Darsh went through months of that themselves. So, while Wallace is, you know, standing there, and he's like, listen, I'm loyal. I'm 100%. I would never give anything up. But if they get me, it very they'll probably break me. They'll break anyone. I don't know anyone who could survive that. The exception of Mercy and Darsh. And Tobias, if you remember correctly. You know, people people don't don't hold things from the torturers of Pandora. When they want something, they get it. So the best thing is to make sure I don't have information to give you. So whether I get tortured or not, I'm not giving up any other. <clears throat> so he says, I didn't know I don't know where they're taking her or any of that nature. But I, this is what I can tell you. When I received message that Dina was coming, and that's how he heard it. She's in danger. She's coming. We have to get, the, we have to get this ball rolling. We have to get her to the next chain. And 
a chain came to him. And he knew where that was coming from, right? A messenger, maybe from Fire Moon or whatever the case was, someone who knew this was a problem, who was watching, came to him and said, hey, this is going on. She's coming. He would know who that previous person is, but now he has to set her up on the next link. All right, she's getting here. I've got to get this ball rolling. So what he was to do in that situation, he personally, out of all of his faults, he personally, there is a statue in the middle of the marketplace. The statue dedicated to uh, Christopher's father, King Christopher. And he would go there all day, just hang out by the statue. Every 15 or 20 minutes, he would wipe his brow with a red handkerchief. And he would sit there, and that doesn't mean maybe he had some wares or something, or maybe he was offering a service, whatever the case may be, but he was there every day, all day, doing that. He says that <clears throat> all he, he said that he did that, and then finally, after many, many days, he received a message from the next step in the chain. So he went back to the market the next day. A message or something was left. He goes there. <clears throat> and when he goes to where he's been hanging out, there's another man there. A man he's never seen before. Human male. Very generic. Oh, what's he here? Rat asks, wait, am I tripping? Or did you jump from 14K to 17 subs in no time? Oh, <laughs> no. Um, I, I think I was 14K last April or May. It's been, I gained about 3,000 over the last six or seven months of the year. But thank you for noticing and being part of that. I appreciate it. So he said, at the market, <clears throat> stood next to the statue. Sure enough, eventually, <clears throat> someone showed. The man who was staying there went with them. Went with them back to their kind of hideout thing. Didn't give a name or anything, but explained that a ship would be coming. And that the ship would be there to take Dina and her family to the east, well past Santriel and Corman, outside of what would be known as the Southern Kingdoms. <clears throat> it was 17 days ago that that man escorted Dean and her family to an elven ship. Mark that. There was an elven ship waiting at the docks. Now, <clears throat> Santrial is now a part of the Southern Kingdom, so even though it's brand new. But even before that, well, the trade negotiation things and stuff were going on, elven ships coming into the harbor would be uncommon, but it wasn't like it was way back in the early days of Darstopia, where elves never left elven waters and nobody went into elven water, you know? So an elven ship pop up might get a little attention, like, oh, the elves are here, but it's not going to be a cause for alarm kind of a thing. <clears throat> So an elven ship arrived, Dean and her family got on it. The ship left not with that man. The man then left and went back into the city, and Wallace returned back to his duties. So Wallace, as a regular dude, is living a regular life, right? <coughs> He's probably got an occupation of some kind, may have a family, maybe single, depending on you know the needs of what step is. Um, but they would have other things that they do as well, trading, you know, passing information around, you know, things that benefit the uh, 
rebellion, because, you know, the rebellion's going to need things like weapons and supplies and such. So I'm sure they would help work in those things at all. I wouldn't be surprised if someone like um, Wallace might be, now that the elves are open, seeing what he can do to get elven goods, which, you know, who doesn't want high quality elven goods? and get that to his people back in Oromon in this civil war that they're going through. You know, little things like that, which may seem, oh, the elves are selling stuff, could make a huge difference in a war, especially when your enemies hate magic. That isn't priest magic. So, Wallace says, so I don't know where to find this man. This man found me. Didn't give me a name, I didn't ask for it. That's not how this works. But, what I can do is I can go back tomorrow. I can go back to the statue. That's the sign I was supposed to give. I can't promise anyone's going to reply. I don't know what happened to the guy afterwards. Technically, this was supposed to be a one-time thing, right? This was to get Dean out. Dean is gone. But I'm willing to try and help how I can. <clears throat> of course, without really anything else to go on, Seraph accepts. So... Wallace agrees, and that's what's going to happen. Seraph and Deacon and Mugen are going to be staying hidden in this underground area. Many of the folks, if you will, the, the guards and the people that are there, part of that rebellion, on a day-to-day -day basis, will go back out and go amongst their lives. Too many people disappearing might cause too much, cause too much attention. There's always a couple that are off the grid, that live under there anyways, and stay in there. And Seraph and Deacon and Mugen will be staying there to no longer draw any attention to them. Because as we've mentioned, they've been going all over the city asking for Dina. you got to understand how much that's got to frustrate Wallace and his people, right? Walking around, giving out the name that she's known by. <clears throat> and if they noticed her, and or noticed him, and the Oromanian elites noticed him, who else did, right? The elites attacked him, so they, they caught on to this. Although the man that was following them, or that they were trying to follow that was watching them, was one of Wallace's people. I guess I should. I want to throw that out there in case anyone asks why I don't address that. <laughs> it was one of Wallace's people. So for five days, every day, Wallace returns to the marketplace every day. Same sign. Night he comes back, hangs out there when he can, talking, telling what he found. You can imagine over those next five days, Sarah's practically ripping his hair out, right? Because every day, Dina's getting further and further away, and he has no idea where. Like, he could just go east, you know? But how well will that work? Will the magic spell that show her path even work over ocean? Deacon doesn't know. Never really, you know, he learned the spell specifically for this. You know, it's not something he's tried before, so it may not work once they get on a boat. Even still, east, east is a big thing. East is, is very broad. East is a lot of directions. And without any more hints above that, other than beyond Corman, the only thing I could do is take a, try and get a hold of a boat, go past Corman, get off, and then start going east directly and hope they hear something. That's a lot of gamble. Or they can wait a few days and hopefully get some help. As much as they hate waiting, it's still the best decision. Now, during this time... Seraph and Deacon address another issue that has come up. Deacon does a lot of it. They begin testing. And Deacon tries multiple spells and does everything he can within his ability to test and jib and jab. But 
they figure out that for some reason, Mugen has an overwhelmingly high immunity to magic. Deacon you know, estimates and assumes it's because he was born in a dead magic zone and until very recently had never left it. You know, he's lived in an area where magic cannot exist. He was born of that. Could have brought that with him. It just may be a natural ability that's there. At the same time, could it fade? Way over time? Or is it a part of who he is? There's no way to tell. There's Deacon has never heard of anything like this before, but I mean, he's a mage. Not many of them have a lot of information from inside of a dead magic area. What mage is gonna just throw themselves into an area, you know, where they can't do anything, right? Not a whole lot of information about dead magic zones. It's not like Deacon had a lot of time to prep for that and ask about them before they left. But Sure enough, they do find that not only do spells that could potentially harm Ugin not work or have very little effect, but so also are beneficial spells. He tries casting some spells that would, basic stuff, that would let Mugen jump higher or run faster. You know, just some of the real basic stuff that might be beneficial, and all of them had zero effect on it. They did try a few more offensive-type spells, right? So some of those things. With Mugen's understanding of this could... If, if this goes wrong, this could hurt you. Mugen's like, well, you know, Mugen's not idiot because I'd like to know if wizards are going to throw pretty colors at me. I'd like to know which colors hurt, you know? Which colors do I need to dodge? I mean, that's kind of how he'd address that. He's like, I need to figure out what's going on. Turtle asks, what about healing spells? That is a great question, Turtle. They don't know, because none of them have any. Healing spells fall purely under clerical magic. So until they can get access to a healer who can try, and he'd have to have a wound, right? And they don't want to just go up and like, here, let me break your arm and see if this guy will heal it. You know, I don't want to cut you or anything like that. But they don't have access to a healer where they are right now. So at this point, they don't know if clerical magic will work. That's a great question. and something I had down that I was going to mention. But at least from a wizard's point of view, including a wild mage. And that's another thing to take into account of this. Wild mages have to concentrate extra hard to make sure they're maintaining and controlling wild magic. But, test accurately, a couple very weak spells, Deacon didn't try to control very much. And he got some unexpected results. And in each situation, none of them affected Mugen. Um, the closest thing that they found was secondary effects have, have effect on, on Mugen. Give you an example. If I'm a wizard and I throw a fireball at Mugen, might burn a little bit, like touching something hot. Might tan my skin, give me like a third degree sunburn. But I'm not going to melt and burst into flame like a regular person would from a fireball. That said, if I cast a fireball light a tree on fire, and you touch the fire on that tree, it will burn you. Because that's not the magical fire. At that point, that's just fire. So, easiest way to test that spell, magically start a fire. Pfft. See if that burns you. Hot damn, that burns! Okay. So the fire will hurt you. I cast fire spell on you. You're uncomfortable. Okay. So the secondary effects, the, uh, I guess you could say, the domino effect of a spell, right? I, I, if I cause an avalanche, snow is still going to hurt you, right? 
that's not the spell. That's the spell caused the avalanche, but the avalanche is just a big chunk of snow rolling down a mountain. Things like that are still going to affect him. It's direct spells. Now, area of effect spells, like a fireball, which goes in and explodes and gets a bunch of people, same has that same type of thing. Depending on the power of the spell, how strong it is, the more likely it's going to cause damage. So, let's say, again, a 5th level wizard casts a fireball at Mugen. Maybe he gets a tan. 20th level wizard casts a fireball at Mugen, might burn him to cinders. They don't have a way of testing that, but that's what Deacon is hypothesizing based on the tests he's doing and what he knows of magic. So, um, that's one of the things that they're, they're kind of checking out. Now, another thing that they deal with is all of the Oromanian elites were searched, right? Of course. You know, their bodies were dragged, dragged out of the park and, and gotten rid of. The last thing that even the rebellion wants is King Christopher's people poking around, finding out why there was Oromanian elites fighting in, in, in their national land park, right? They don't want any attention to that, so they had to dispose of those bodies themselves. Which, flip side to that, got them a whole bunch of plus one swords. Because you remember, elites traditionally have long swords plus ones as their primary weapon. And several throwing weapons, which aren't daggers, they're kind of like a mixture between a... Let me try to explain. Uh, a mixture between a throwing star and what Blade throws. in Like the Blade the superhero in the movies, right? You know, his was like a, a big long blade. This one's kind of four-bladed, but not as long. Uh, if you ever saw the movie Crawl, uh, he had a five-bladed one. It's a little bit more like that, but smaller. Because there are a lot of... I'm, I'm explaining something by telling you about a bunch of other things many of you have probably never seen. But uh, if you look up Krull throwing weapon on Google, you'll probably see what I'm talking about. By the way, great old 80s uh, fantasy movie. Obviously, it's an 80s fantasy movie, so you know effects aren't phenomenal. Highly recommend it, though. Great D&D-style movie, even though it's not D&D Great movie I recommend checking out for a classic D&D kind of feel. People on an adventure having to do certain things to fight the bad guy. Great example. Krull. K-R-U-L-L. -L. I had a poster from that a long time ago, but it got ruined in a flood. I lost so much crap in a flood. All right. So, as would be expected, other than their weapons and maybe some basic, you know, gear, food, bedroll, whatever, there's nothing. They have nothing on them that would say who they are. Any of that kind of stuff. They don't carry letters or anything like that. They travel light. The clerical person type person. I say clerical person because he appeared to be a cleric. But he was using magic items more commonly found used by wizards. He had a wand of magic missiles. Among some other wands that he was whipping out. Um, that person also had nothing identifying on them. Other than some magical wands couple other basic magical items um and was also carrying a symbol of pandora it was in fact a cleric i mean you don't you don't walk around with a cleric's holy symbol if you're not a cleric so this this was a cleric who was using magical items which is a concern for everyone involved you know deacon i'll think concern for serenity and kingdom fire moon southern kingdoms in general that's been the one edge they've had over Oromon since the beginning of Merged Worlds, when they fought them, is that they hated mages and had no mages. And so mages were really the equaling effect. If their clerics now all have access to mage stuff, that could be a problem for the rest of the world. 
No, Deacon and them did not get any of that stuff. Uh, Wallace takes that stuff and says it'll be used by them. I mean, not like in a moon, right? It's like, ah, oh, we'll see if we can get these in the hands of our mages. Because you got to assume they have some, right? Again, that's their big thing against the rest of the, uh, <coughs> against the clergy, is that they can use mages. Of course, so can the merchants. And that's something to think about. The merchants, merchant lords that are trying to take over, spend money on whatever, they have no problem using magic. They're not part of the church. They'll hire mages or clerics of any faction they can get a hold of to do that. So that's something else to consider, okay? They thought it was this mysterious fourth faction that was hunting her, but what if it's not? What if instead it's the merchant lords? These are things that they would have talked about. What if it's the merchant lords and they've hired priest mages? Play D&D, there are dual-classed and multi-class characters. Those do exist, although they don't pop up that much in Merge World. There are a couple, but not many. Or is this not related and just a whole new thing they have to worry about? So they would have sent those magic items and what they could to try to, you know, get that looked at by their wizards. The swords and such, they would use themselves or send them back to through the rebellion so that people actually fighting in the rebellion would have now some magical swords. Why not? They'll use Ormoni and elite swords. That's still really good magical swords. You don't turn down something like that if you find it. <clears throat> as far as they can tell, Mugen has naturally immunity to magic. Now, they don't have a lot of magic items on them, oddly enough. What few they have are more of a protection nature. Um... So they don't carry a ton other than some magical gear themselves. Seraph's weapons are magical weapons, plus one. And uh, Deacon is carrying a sword, plus two. That was a gift from his father, right? Why would you not? It's your prince, and you know he's living on the other side of the world. Man, armor your kid, right? You're going to give him some decent stuff when you have that option. And Mugen has no magic items except for Fig's hammer. But Fig's hammer's abilities are all passive. And by that, I mean that you don't have to activate them. There's no command word. Um, they just do... It's just a, it's a magical hammer that does a... a Warhammer that does a lot of damage with an increased chance of doing excessive damage. The increased chance is, is more based on how well he hits and he rolls. It's not something he chooses. Uh, questions pop up. That's a lot of spells. If Mugen has and uses a magical thing, does it work? Excellent. And that's what we're, uh, I was actually talking about here right now. It's hard for them to know. Right? Because the hammer, they only really seen him in one fight so far. And he handled himself really, really well. But that could be because he's just a good warrior. Because he is. Right? You know, they don't, they may not even know that the hammer is magical. I'm sure in all this, they would have cast, you know, Deacon cast Detect Magic on him or to make sure he wasn't inspelled or cursed or anything. And probably said, oh, wow, you've got a magical warhammer right there. And Mugen might be like, really? Or, you know, his father might say, this is magical. It won't help me here, but take this with you. It'll help you in the outside world. He may know that. Um, but there's not really a way of testing whether the hammer's working, because it doesn't have an effect. None of them have an ability on them that actually does an effect. The closest they have is the little hairpin for Dina. But that doesn't work in the city anyways. <laughs> so they're kind of boned. They don't have a lot of ways of testing that. But I can guarantee you it is something that they'll be looking for that opportunity. If they can get a hold of a you know, <clears throat> magic wand or 
or something, magic ring that does something with command, or something visible. Like, put this ring on, and you go invisible. Right, that's an easy one. I put it on, nothing happens. Okay, this doesn't work. I put it on, and go invisible. Okay, cool, that still works. That's, that's kind of the, the thing they'll need to test when they have that ability. But that's a really good question and something I did want to address. And, of course, the last big thing they're, that they're kind of toiling on is something even Wallace can't explain. He was also surprised when the ship that came for Dina was an elven ship. When I say not just an elven ship, an elven ship with what he saw was an elven crew. It was a small elven ship. But by small, I mean, you know, 12, 15 crew members, not a massive ship like Darsha ships and things like that, right? Um, so he doesn't know anything about that. Something he's, ever since that night, he's wondered, how are the elves involved? You can't, you got to think about that, right? Dude, for 15, 20 years... This has been his life every day watching for that sign. Is today the day I've got to save my princess? Then that day comes and I pass her off to elves and I'm like, I didn't know elves were involved. You're going to weigh, it's going to weigh on your mind. What is going on? There's no way for me to find out. Oh, Rat has some questions. Uh, is there times where you're like incredibly excited about a part you're writing? I don't know anything about D&D, but I feel the players have the most fun. and The DM might have some fun, but not as much. Kind of like when you're the finder in hide-and-seek. It's fun, but not as much fun as hiding. No, yo, don't mean to offend. No, great question, great question. And to be honest, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that from traditional DMs, and then I'm going to give you my answer. It's a great question. Traditionally, for most of the people that I know who DM a lot or DM regularly, there are times when they can get a little burned out or bored and would really like to be a player once in a while. Very often, the DM is in the group is the person who got stuck DMing. Uh, maybe there's like, hey, I'll DM once. We don't have a DM. I'll give it a shot. And turned out to be pretty good at it. And then just kind of that became their role. Um, so some DMs have absolutely no problem. Love DMing. Do it by choice. And they want to do that. They're storytellers by nature. But some people do get a little burned down and such. Now, me, myself, I love DMing. Um, almost immediately, I wanted to DM because I wanted to tell stories. Because in my head... Every second of the day, I'm imagining something. And that sounds odd, but bear with me, I'm explaining it. Literally, no matter what I'm doing or where I'm going, I'm writing something in my head. Uh, it's a story. Maybe it's just a hypothetical that I'm putting myself in or a hypothetical I would write. I have a science fiction story I'm trying to start writing into a novel that I've had in my head for the last uh, eight years at this point I've been working on. And very often, it's merged worlds. I'm going When I'm driving, especially if I'm driving listening to music... I'm writing the story in my head. I do it at night as well. I lay down and go to bed. I will lay in bed for an hour or two before I go to sleep, unless I'm really tired or something. And I'm listening to music, and I'm writing the story. That's why I do a lot of my pre-writing in my head. I love DMing. I love being a storyteller. I have no desire to be a PC. That said, if a situation arose, and you know there was a situation where you know a group came together and like, hey, we're looking for someone. We're all really experienced. We'd like to get you in there. And other content creators like, hey, I'm a DM. We've got a channel we do. We'd love you to come in and do a spot as a PC. I would jump at the chance to do that. Why not? That's always not only an opportunity to have fun with great people, uh, but it might help me learn some things. I could make my story better. Not, I mean, take their story, but uh, everybody plays D&D a little bit differently. Everybody has their own house rules. And sometimes people come up with some really good stuff that other people might, oh, God, I'm going to use that too. That's a great idea. I've acclimated things that I've had other, other groups do that I've played with, and I know there have been a lot of people who've taken things that I've done and put that into their own game. Um, so to answer that question, I'm very excited, particularly when we get to a hook. And so if by a hook, I mean... 
very often in the story, there are scenes that I write. Um, if you've been following this for a while, um, the scene where very recently Seraph and Draven bumped heads physically for the first time. You know, where there's that argument about Dina. Or the situation where the undead attacked Serenity. Uh, particularly, what Dandy was going through, standing on that balcony, realizing something was wrong and couldn't figure out what it was. That conversation she had in her head, and then how she finally gets that to Mercy, and how that all initiates. I have that in my head long, long before I ever get there. And very often I'll come up with that scene. And then for me, it's a matter of, okay, now how do I write the story to get there? What do I have to put in place so I can make that happen in the way I'm seeing it in my mind? Um, so when I finally get to those scenes, right? When I finally get to those scenes that I've probably played over my head a hundred times, if not way more, I finally get to share that. That's... A lot of times it's all I can do not to shed a tear because I'm just so excited to finally get to tell people, you know, like when I got to introduce Mugen, like I was excited for Mugen for months. Um, but to give it a, a very big example of that, I've already talked a lot in this storyline that one day Seraph is going to have to make a choice and that choice will affect everything. I have that entire scene written. I had that entire scene written when Seraph was barely a baby and half the other NPCs didn't even exist and weren't even a concept yet. I knew what that choice was going to be. I knew what was going to go on in that scene and how it was going to break down. That's not to say that a couple times since then I've had something better and I've changed it a bit, but the overall feel for how that scene is going to play out and what it's going to be, I've known for years. And so everything I'm doing is to get to that scene. Everything I've been doing for years, even the other scenes I wanted to get to, those are all small stones to get to that scene because that's the scene that everything else is pointed towards. Everything else just gets to that one moment and all of this, this entire Merged Worlds project exists for that decision. Um, so I'll be totally excited and overwhelmingly stressed out when I finally get to tell that part of the story. MT says, we play a lot by, by a Draven's Rules of Drows. Hey, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I do appreciate that. <laughs> if, if, if I can be helpful and, and, and give people ways uh, that makes your game a little bit easier, way more fun, I'm happy to do so. All right. So thank you for the questions. I appreciate that. That was a great question. All right. So, as I mentioned, that went on for five days. And the evening of the fifth day, Wallace returns to the hideout in the ruins, but he's not alone. He brings a man back with him. The man comes in and introduces himself as Jeb. But as the way he says it, and just kind of the way that everybody else looks at him, immediately Seraph's assuming that's probably not his real name. And that's fine. These people are in the secret business. They're trying to protect not just themselves, but the rest of the rebellion. You can imagine Seraph at this point, he's like, listen, I'm looking for Dean. I don't give a hell what your name is. Your name can be Mud. I don't care. You are irrelevant. I need you to get me to the next. How do I get to her? You need to get me one step closer. Huh? You want to tell me your name is whatever. I don't care. So they don't question it, but immediately, you know, he kind of looks at Deacon and they're like, yeah, that's not your name. But okay, Jeb. Awesome. Um, 
Geb seems upset. Confused and upset. So he showed up, and Wallace is like, something has happened, I need you to come with me. Something else has happened, and I, I don't know what needs to be done about it, and I need to talk to you about it. The man's like, oh, so he shows up. You probably heard a little bit of, there's a guy here named Seraph, and it's Dina's love interest. And Jeb would be like, yeah, I'm aware of him. He's like, yeah, well, he's here, and he's looking for her. And Jeb would be like, oh, hey, I'll go with you. So he shows up, and immediately he's like, uh, you know, this is not supposed to be happening right now. There was never to be contact between me and Wallace and his people ever again. Every moment that I'm with you adds danger for Dina. Because that's more people that know about me and might know about more, depending on what we talk about. What we talk about, the more danger she's in, because now people have that information, and if possible, somehow that information could get out higher. So he's like, we need to make this quick, and I've got to go. Seraph says, okay, I can respect that. My name is Seraph Bloodborne. This is Prince Deacon Firemoon. Now, Jeb's like, huh? Because you got to imagine that's a bit of a surprise. Like, I've heard of Seraph because this man met with Dina. Dina, Dina said, I, everyone I've talked to knows you. I've, I've mentioned you. They'll help you if they can. So you got to imagine, Jeb's like, okay, she mentioned you. Probably didn't have a lot of time. You're here with the Prince of Firemoon. That's some weight on it. Everybody knows who that is. King Firemoon, well-beloved, incredibly powerful king in the Southern Kingdoms, and he's standing. his son's standing right here. You can imagine how angry that's going to make this Jeb person. Someone that is overwhelmingly easy to recognize, like Deacon. And just because he looks like a weirdo compared to everybody else, Seraph stands out as well. Right? But he expected Seraph. Deacon, not so much. And this is all going on in his head as he's being introduced. And then he's like, and this is Mugen. And he introduces him as Prince of New Gully. Jeb, again, his head, he's like, what the hell is a New Gully? He wouldn't know. No one knows New Gully. No one knows it exists in there. That's how they like it. But this man stands out worse than the other two. Those of you who may have forgotten what Mugen looks like, if you're watching the video, there's Mugen. That boy stands out. He's very short. But it, that is not someone who you blend in with the crowd of poor humans walking around in RDL or whatever the case may be. These are three very obvious people. Sarah says, we've, we've come for Dina. Been following her trail, trying to get to her. I'm sure he goes into a little more detail. Dina's my beloved. I am trying to find her. I want to make sure she's okay. I'm going to protect her. And I need you to tell me where she is. Or where she's gone. If you can't, if you don't know where she is. I understand how this works now. If you don't know where she is, fine. Where do I go to next? Who's the next person I need to talk to? Jeb says, it's true. I don't know where she is. I don't know where she's gone. Just a link in the chain. But I'm telling you right now, there's nowhere else you can go. He's like, what do you mean? The next link 
is not going to tell you anything. And Seraph's like, Tee you, he And you got to imagine that Seraph says that in such a cold, because Seraph has that ability. He's got that from his dad. It just comes across this cold, where he can be like, this is a delicious sandwich. And you're like, this man's going to kill me. His voice can come off that way easily. If he is angry, it comes off even more so. I guarantee you will. And Jeb like literally leans back back out of it like, oh shit. Because the threat and, and again, Seraph is one of these people who literally radiates power. You know what I mean? His movements are so fluid like you know, you know, if a human sees an elf move, you're like, oh, it's like a dancer. An elf sees someone like Seraph or, or or Draven move like and it's like, oh my god, it's a dancer. It's that kind of thing, it's that step of agility, right? Um to be honest, Seraph and agility-wise, the only one on par with them, actually the only person that beats them would be Dandy. Dandy's agility is horrendous um, at this point. I want to say she had a 21 or 22 dexterity by the point that we last ended the actual playing of the, that character. Uh, agility-wise, there was almost nothing she couldn't do that was within the realm of, of possibility. As long as it was something feasible, she could pretty much pull it off. Um, that doesn't mean she's as fast as Draven or Seraph or as strong, but from an agility standpoint, she's overwhelmingly agile. Jeb immediately gets nervous. And everybody sees that. Even, even um, you know, the, the allies and the stuff that are there. They're like, um, okay. Wallace is like, nervous for you know? He's like, I would have nothing to do with this. Nor should I speak of it any further. Before she left, Dina asked me to help you. If a day should come, and I'm surprised it was actually so quick, but if a day should come, you come searching for, I should do what I could to help you. And, you know, normally I would have had to vet you and figure out if it's really you, but Wallace has done all of that already. And to be honest, standing here looking at you, I don't think you could be confused for anyone else. You described what you look like, but I... I didn't quite get the mental picture till you walked in. And the second I saw you, I'm like, that's him to a T. So I can give you a little bit of information, but I don't know if, I don't think it's going to help you. First, you have to understand that this chain, as we call it, where all the link in getting her further away into safety was created long ago, more than a decade ago. Long before Santriel became a member of the Southern Kingdoms. And back when that was first set up, traveling through elven waters was nigh impossible. The only ships that had any freedom to walk through those belonged to Darsh Fohammer, who you can imagine Seraph has already name-dropped at this point, right? He's like, it's Darsh Fohammer, and even he had limited... But other than that, no one else was going into these waters until the last few years. So these arrangements were set up when that option didn't exist. The cost to set this up, horrendous. And we paid heavily for it. But the only person that could get her through the elven waters into the next link in the chain was Captain Endian Wavestrider. Now, you can imagine that 
Seraph. Deacon, like, Indian Wave Star. That name doesn't mean anything to them. And we're probably about to say that name doesn't mean anything a lot to us. They would have had Wallace not immediately grabbed Jeb by the shirt and thrown him up against the wall. And Wallace is up in his face, screaming at him. How could you give her to him? Of anyone? How in the world could you trust her with him? Wallace is furious. To the point that Seraph has to step up and put his hand on his chest and push him back a little bit. People couldn't do that with one hand, but Seraph's like, you need to back up a little bit. And sure enough, Wallace's feet just slide. And he's like, okay, that was unexpected. Who's the wave guy? Says Mugen, confused by everything that's going on. And Wallace goes, an elven pirate. More than an elven pirate, an elven pirate lord. Probably one of the most dangerous group of pirates that sail the Southern Sea. Long been a thorn in the side of Arduel and any good nation, including Darstopia. The type of elf that doesn't like to leave survivors. Now, Sarah's face gets a little more frustrated, like, excuse me? And Jeb's like, you have to understand, there were no other options. There are things in play here. There are things I can't talk about. But please, trust me when I tell you. All of us care for Dina. We all want her to be safe. I'm a part of the same chain as you are, Point Wallace. This decision was not made by me. While I still may question it, things in play that made this the best and only choice. Wave Strider made arrangements for the ship. It was one of his ships that took her to the east. Where? I don't know. That's not information I have. Only had information how to get a hold of him and let him know it was time to do what he was paid to do. And I guarantee you he was paid a lot. And that's why I mentioned this to you. Why I warn you. This is not the type of man who's just going to tell you because he likes to. He was paid a lot to not tell anyone. On top of that, not the type of person that would do anything for free. If, in fact, you can even get to him. Whether or not he'll even begin to consider telling the information, I doubt that he would. Not a nice guy. Uh, Rat says, it seems like you're reading from a notepad, so it makes me wonder if you ever get to a point in your story where you're telling it, where you're like, maybe not, and changing it on the spot. Yes! I'd be happy to answer that question, Rat. Yeah! I improv a lot. Um, so, I'll give you just an example. Let me go back to an old part of the story. <clears throat> so, just quick here. In this section of the story, it's all bullet points. So, I don't want to show it a lot because I don't remember what's on that page and it could be important. Don't pause and go back and look at it, you criminals. <laughs> but I'll have section. When I say I'm going to read something, that's something I've written down specifically to read out a segment of the story that I want it to come out a specific way. Um, everything else is bullet points. This is the information I need to get across. In my head, I know it already, but the exact wording and, and maybe on the fly, I'll come up with something I like a little bit better. I'll throw that out there. But I already know where the story's going enough that I won't mess it up. 
Um, I didn't used to be as detailed with it. And if you go back to some of the very early episodes of Merge Worlds, there were a couple I had to go back the next week and be like, hey guys, I need to really quickly update. I made a mistake last week. I think the, probably the most, the biggest one people caught is there's one episode in the early years where um, Dandy had merged a stone to her hoop pack, one of the, one of the, the magical stones they were gathering. And <coughs> then the next episode, it wasn't attached to anything. And that's because there was this, a very small, unimportant encounter that happened when we were actually playing D&D that caused it to be removed. That really wasn't important to the story, but I forgot I hadn't told that part. So I had to go back and fix that. Um, so yes, yeah. Sometimes I do change things. Sometimes I come up with a little bit better idea on the fly, but it's rare that I, I deviate far from my notes. Because again, I, a lot of this I've known for a long time and I've already gone over it in my head <laughs> many, many times. Good question. So yeah, I, I, I regularly check back to my notes to make sure I'm hitting all the story beats that I need to make sure are in there. And then I read the direct stuff that I have written. And I write it as I mean to read it. This stuff's all bullet points. Um, but now that he has this information, Seraph's like, okay. How do I meet him? I reach him. You obviously have a way. How do I reach him? Deb stops for a minute, and you can see he's kind of thinking, okay. Kind of talked myself into a spot here. He goes, I have a contact that is technically part of his crew. Actually works more as a fence for the goods they steal. You're an RDL. Now, I know that some of you, you're looking at Deacon, um, being of the noble persuasion, might think this is information that King Christopher would like to know. I have to know for sure that that's not going to happen if I give this information up. Not only for us, but the captain knows where Dina went, and I don't. Sure as hell don't want to point an angry man at her. You know what I mean? And Deacon's like, no, I, I don't care in the least. I mean, he's a fancy sell stolen goods. That sucks. Uh, you know, but that's... Not important to what we're looking for right now. This is more important to us. He's like, okay, uh, tomorrow I can take you to speak with someone in his crew. I would speak to you, but I don't think he's going to just speak to me without you. You're, he's going to have to see you for this. Sarah's like, all right, we'll be ready to go. So Jeb stays in the camp, the underground hidden area that night. Um, <coughs> doesn't want to be seen coming and going a lot either. And so, the next day, Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen go with him down to the docks. Wallace does not come. Jeb is quite assured. I do not want you and I to be seen in public any more than we have to be. And you can imagine, after he's done talking to Seraph, Wallace and Jeb probably spoke a little bit to the side. Jeb's probably chewed him out a good chunk. Or, you know, contact him and this could never happen again. At the same time, Wallace would have chewed him out for the whole pirate thing. But in either case, three friends go with him down to the docks. Now, just like a city, a large dock system, if you have a city with a big enough dock system, which RDL has, if not the largest, the second largest. Just like a city, there's going to be nicer areas and there's going to be less nice areas. Rich ships at this end, poor ships at that end. You know, a rich ambassador comes in on their very big fancy ship. 
does not want to be parked next to the fishing boat that stinks real bad. Although historically, docks and such are where trash, refuse, and even bodies are thrown. So usually the wharf around a dock is pretty stanky to begin with. But, you know, just giving examples. So you can imagine that um, Jeb leads Seraph to the less nice area of the docks. And there's a small fishing boat docked, I almost said parked, but docked in one of the inlets. They make their way towards it. Appears to be five or six men are hauling in some fish or moving in. I'm sorry, move, have several barrels of fish, not pickled, just regular, and are moving some crates in. So it looks like he's a small person who is trading in goods or shipping. Now, immediately, Seraph is like, well, these are probably stolen goods, but that's not my problem right now. As they approach, a man steps out from inside the ship, and this man's noticeably slightly larger than the rest. And immediately, Seraph recognizes him as a half-orc. Not hard to know what a half-orc looks like. You see one, you'll remember. So this half-orc comes out, and he sees Jeb, and he looks confused. He sees Seraph and friends, and he looks more confused wiping his hands on a towel, and he starts walking down the, the edge of the boat and comes down the gangplank. And he's, you know, kind of going slow and carefully, but he's watching. He's not, he doesn't show any fear. He's not worried. He's just confused why these people are here. And he comes walking down, and uh, before Jeb can even say anything, he says, I wasn't supposed to see you again. It's part of the deal. Jeb apologizes, I understand, but something has happened that unfortunately has made me seek you out a second time. And he then turns and introduces, this is Seraph Blutman. This is friend Deacon and Mugen. It was discussed ahead of time that he would not be giving Deacon's last name. Think about the situation. What pirate wants to, you know, two reasons. One, don't want to set up Deacon for a kidnapping. Although Seraph and Deacon might be able to handle themselves. You can imagine Jeb and Wallace and them don't quite know Seraph and Deacon's capabilities. They saw a bit of it, but not completely. You can imagine they're going to be like, we don't want you to kidnap him. At the same time, you might not want to see these three guys if you think it's a trap because here's a prince, right? 50-50 either way. These are three men. They're looking for a young lass that was given uh, aid in traveling. At this point, let's see, 17, it took five days, 22, 23 days ago. Think about that. Dina's been gone a while by the point we're at right now, right? That's a long time. Every That's, that's a lot of time to try to catch up when you don't know where you're going. Jeb introduces the man as Throne. For those of you who are wondering, it's T-H-R-O-L-N, Throne. People are always asking about the spelling because some of the stuff I say could be taken many ways. Sarah steps up. Like, well met, sir. I'm looking for the young lady. I need to know where she went. And I have every reason to believe you probably don't know. So I need to speak to your captain. Ron's eyes narrow and he laughs a little bit. You got to imagine this. 
white poofy haired guy says, I want to speak to your captain. I mean, it's basically the Karen situation of all Karen situations, right? <laughs> that didn't cross my mind till just this moment. I'd like to speak to your captain. Oh, my God, that hurts. And he's like, he's like, and why in the world would the captain want to see you? The captain doesn't take vi visitors. He laughs again. Oh, it seems understandable. My mother is Artemis Silverstar. Leaves out the Blood Moon part. Was the high clear of the Kingdom of Serenity. Best friends with Mercy Harriton Uthwiston, Uthwalen, and also best friends with Darsh Fohammer, Darshtopia. That catches Thrawn's attention. Like an uncle to me, you could say. And um, if I could get some assistance in that matter, something as important as we're talking about today, I am positive. And Uncle Darsh, he's, never in his life has he ever called him Uncle Darsh. Uncle Darsh would be very appreciative of that. The reason I'm mentioning it in these ways is this is a pirate. Darsh, not only is he a merchant lord of his own at this point, Darsh does not like pirates, doesn't like his ships getting targeted, and is one of the strongest force for hunting and destroying pirates in the Southern Sea at this point. At least outside of uh, Corman's technical waters, because nobody normally messes with a Minotaur ship. Maybe if they're a little bit closer to Paxawall or something, but when they're in Minotaur waters, you don't mess with Minotaur ships. Darsh will hunt out and seek you down. And the fact that, you know, there could be some head bonking here. You can imagine that Throne's first thought is kind of what we were talking about Deacon a moment ago. Helping this guy mm, might earn us some goodwill towards someone, a favor we could call in later. Captain might like to have that little chip. You know what I mean? Like to have that little favor in his pocket in case of an emergency. At the second time, nephew of that guy, huh? Kidnapping. I mean, you got to imagine he's, he's going to think about all those things. He's a pirate for Christ. He's going to be like, I wonder how much this kid's worth to foe hammer. You know, so he's like, I'll give, I'll make sure your message gets to the captain. Be here tomorrow, same time. I should have an answer for you by then. Sarah, of course, immediately wants to throttle the man and be like, I need to know now, you know, kind of thing. He's freaking out every day, right? But this guy's agreed to at least take his message. He does not want to push anything now. Sarah thanks him respectfully and states, yes, we'll be back here again tomorrow, same time. They return back to their little hidden area. But, you know, like, imagine they're going through streets and trying to lose people and make sure nobody's following and all that kind of stuff. And maybe going through the secret passageway to get out the wall. Everything they can to not be followed. They get back to their little secret area. As they're heading back there, they meet up with Wallace and Jeb bids farewell. He goes, I've done all I can do for you. At this point, we will have no more contact and you don't know who I am. They say, and then you thank him. Like, we thank you for your help anyways, and I understand. And thank you for all you've done for Dean. Is what Seraph says. And that's one thing that kind of 
hits Jeb, Jeb a little bit, you know. Just, he's still part of that chain. He cares about her as much as Wallace does. That's why these people are chosen to have this ability. Or have these abilities this help to help when the when the when the shit hits the fan, right? And so he's like, I promise you it was my pleasure. And then bows to Sarah It's the first time he seems genuine and kind of takes off. Wallace escorts them back to the rest of the way. Tells War- Wallace what they heard. Next morning, they're gonna go back. So again, that next that night goes through without any problems. Another day to add to the total. Right? Today. Next morning, they return back down to the docks. This time by themselves. They don't have Jed. They're going down. They know where they're going. When they arrive, Thrawn is there waiting for them. And he says, he says, I'll be honest. I was surprised, but the captain has agreed to meet with you. Tonight is the time. Small ship will arrive in a dock right over there. It'll only be here for an hour. Make sure you're there and on it before it leaves. It will take you to the captain. But I have to ask, are you really sure that's what you want to do? Almost like he's warning him a little bit. Are you sure you want to meet face to face with the captain? Sarah's looking and goes, we'll be on that ship. Promise. Thrawn's like, all right, kind of the whole, your funeral kind of thing. Gives that kind of like, all right. He just turns around and goes back to his ship. The other guy's like, well, I guess we've got part of a day to burn. They have all their stuff because they didn't know if they're going to be escorted that right moment. So they kind of spend just a little bit of time hanging around the docks for the rest of the day. Maybe getting a bite to eat. They've probably just been eating what the other guys were bringing them for the last week or two. Probably had some supplies down there. Get a hot meal, a couple drinks. <laughs> at a nearby grungy bar. A place that they can kind of stay hidden and just take their time. But sure enough, that evening, the ship arrives at the designated time. Shortly after sundown, the ship arrives, and it, surprisingly, it's smaller than they would have expected. And it is definitely not an elven boat. It's an old boat. Looks kind of rickety. It looks sturdy enough to sail. Not that any of these guys have ever been on a big boat. But, you know, assuming, looking at it, they got here, so it's probably going to go somewhere, but definitely does not look like the uh, fancy pirate ship they would have imagined. Because why would a fancy pirate ship pull into the dock of a city, right? Like, you know, common sense here. But still, they're young and inexperienced. Ship arrives, and they make their way over. They, 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 they give it a few minutes. Make sure they get settled, tied off. Sure enough, after a couple minutes, someone on the docks comes up. Some coins passed. Because you got to pay to dock your ship. how that works. So whether you're picking up cargo, leaving cargo, whatever the case may be. The person taking the coins doesn't stay long. So either someone who knows them or someone who got paid real well to not know them. After a little bit of time, the you know, coast is clear. The docks are busy. Even at night, ships loaded being loaded, unloaded. So it's none of a, it's not a situation where the docks are clear, you know? Maybe two or three in the morning. It's just after sundown. They make their way to the ship quickly as they can. They got, you know, Seraph specifically has his hood pulled up. Um, they've gotten for Mugen at this point a coat 
to wear over his clothing. They had to literally take a knife and cut it short because it's almost like a trench coat for him. But it's very baggy in the arms and such. Um, but again, granted, he's got some muscle on him. Uh, but to try to hide his tattoos and wild hair and such, he's his coat with kind of a hood. So you can imagine it, just this running cross street. It looks like two guys and a kid making their way across the docks. They get to the they get to the docks and there's like I said looks like there's about seven or eight guys on on the on the on the deck and they all appear human. Walk up, sheriff walks up and one of the guys walks down, kind of looking around, and goes, "You bloodborne?" Sheriff nods. The other two, he's like, "All right, get aboard." They do and they're led to a one of the other guys leads them to just a small room below decks. Probably was a storage room at some point. Um, but at this point, it's just been it's been emptied out. It smells bad. It smells like fish. But so does the whole ship and all of the docks. So that's not outside the normal. Taken to that room, there's a couple chairs in there. Mugen sits cross-legged on the floor. Chairs are always too tall for him anyways. He prefers that. They're kind of hanging out in there for a few minutes. And then that first gentleman shows up and he goes, The ship will be underway in just a moment going to take some time to get there. You three will be staying in this room the whole time. If you poke your head out, even for a moment, we're going to toss you overboard. And that'll be the end of it. Food will be brought to you twice a day. Someone will stop by once a day to get your bucket. But other than that, stay inside. Sheriff and Deacon and them aren't happy with this, but they also understand they're probably being taken someplace important. You know, maybe they don't want them to see where they're going, whatever the case may be. Fortunately, Deacon does not look like a wizard. And that's an important thing to notate in the situation. Well, Deacon does use magic. He walks around with swords on his belt and such. He is not your typical mage. He's not in robes or none of that stuff. At first glance, there's nothing to make you think this guy has any magic ability at all, other than he does carry a spellbook. But it's a small spell book on his on package or thing on his belt, which a lot of wizards do. And he's got a couple more bags on his belt than you'd ex- you'd expect. Spell components, you know, regular person walking around a sword probably doesn't have six little pouches on their belt. They may have one or two for coins or personal items. This guy carries a little bit more, but that might be the only thing that might make you think this this guy maybe has some magic involved. Um, but he looks like a regular dude. And that's important in situations like this because they might be a little more hesitant to bring a mage on because who knows what spell the mage could cast in that room that might track where they're going, right? And obviously, they're being put in here so that doesn't happen. They spend the next 48 hours in that room. And to say it was 48 of potentially the worst hours of all three of their lives is an understatement. I don't know if it was just a storm or if it was just regular waves, but these are three men who've never been on a boat bigger than a little tiny rowboat for fishing. It was 48 hours of illness and vomiting. <laughs> what food was brought to them was... It was, it was food. They weren't brought anything that would be, you know, looked at like they were prisoners or anything. It was adequate food, but, you know, most of them barely ate anything on those two days. They did drink what water was brought to them. Water was brought to them... You know, they were given a good supply of water. But my goodness, did they have 48 hours of just hell sickness on that boat. Not something we talk about in D&D, right? 
But you think about that. None of them have ever been on a ship before. And of all three of them, the one who'd be having the most difficulty is Seraph. And that's partially because he's just so sensitive to stuff. And he has other hungers to worry about. Fortunately, he has a flask for those situations. Something that Mugen tried to ask about once, but they kind of implied that's not worth it. Okay. Lex popped in. I don't know if my character will have sickness or not. It's true. Uh, sometimes as a DM, I'll roll for that. If somebody's doing a ship for the first time, I'll roll whether they're prone to seasickness. And I'll also take into account their backstory. You know, if you're from, like, Darsh, for example, who spent his whole life on boats, he's obviously not going to, right? Um, Mercy, or Artemis, who spent little to no time on boats, they have an easier time with it. Surprisingly, from what little research I've done, elves normally have an easier time. Um, but with Seraph's other, say, half? No. The other half of his blood, which is technically a quarter of one quarter of another, it's very confusing sometimes. It's half elven, quarter demon, quarter vampire. But born vampire, not traditional, what you would expect as a vampire. Very confusing. Sometimes I roll for that, just like sometimes we roll for phobias at the beginning. I've talked about that before. I have a phobia chart. A lot of times I'll ask, hey, do you want to have a phobia? Is there something specific you think you'd like to add to your character? If you've got a good one you'd like to add, I'm fine with it. But if you're like, I don't know, I'm like, okay. Let's roll. Uh, my character's from land, frozen land, so it would be on a con save. Fifth edition, I'd probably say you're correct. Second edition, Constitution has something called system shock. Normally that's what we roll. The higher the constitution, the higher chance of success. 17, 16 or 17 constitution, you've probably got like an 85 to 88% chance of being okay. Um, sometimes you'll get a little negative for it being your first time. So if I was to say a character's seasick capabilities, let's just say we're figuring that out and I'm going to try to do it with 5th edition math here, right? Let's say that your DM says you have to roll above a 15 to not be sick. Okay? All right, let's, let's, say, let's, let's word that a little bit differently. If you can roll above a 12, you don't get sick. But if you roll five or below before modifiers, not only do you get sick, but you are prone to seasickness and will get sick anytime you're on a ship for more than two hours. You know what I mean? Because some people are always seasick regardless how many times. Same as some people can get sick in a plane regardless of how many times they've flown. Some people, the first couple times, they get used to it, right? So I would say there's a chance to get sick while you're on that voyage. After that voyage, you have less chance of getting sick and less chance and less chance and less chance. Unless you roll that critical, hey, if you roll under five or under three, whatever number your DM wants to pick, you will always be sick on a ship if you're on there for more than an hour, more than two hours. Um, and that's just something your character has to deal with. That's a negatives they'll receive while trying to fight on a boat. Um, but. 
I would like to, I would do something like that, give you that gamble of potential, because just like real life, you never know, right? Unless you come to me, you're like, listen, my character hates the ocean, and they're always going to be sick. Well, that's fine. You all, you want to be that way. I'll let you role play it that way. Or again, you have a phobia of the ocean. Yeah, you're always going to be sick. Um, but I think that that chance of always being sick like that, you know, just that you're just one of those people. Ocean sickness, there's just nothing you can do about it, right? MT says, I'm 40 and still get car sick of traveling more than three hours. Great example. Some people will just get motion sickness. Doesn't matter what you take, medicines or how many times you've done it. Sometimes it's fun to add that little bit of realism in there, right? That's why I like everybody to have a phobia. Everybody's scared of something. For 48 hours of living sickness hell, these guys spend in this very small room, which you can imagine after a short period of time is going to smell like shit and vomit. And I know that sounds a little harsh, but when I said they'll be coming once a day for your bucket, I hopefully you understood what I was talking about. Um, so, you know, there's that. So finally, 48 hours later, give or take, it's not exactly, but you know, a couple days later, when the door finally opens and the man is standing there again, he's like, all right, we're here. The boat's still rocking. Not like crazy, but it's still rocking. Still feels like it's moving a little bit, but hell, they can't tell. They all, at this point, they've nothing left to vomit. They all stand up and weakly, and they all look pale. So imagine what Seraph looks like at this point. They all look pale and begin to wobbly make their way up on deck. When they reach the deck, they are very surprised to find that they are in the middle of the ocean. Well, you know, not in the middle, but you know, there's no land anywhere. But what there is, is a much, much larger, better quality pirate ship directly next door. With a much larger crew on it. They have been transported to the ship of Captain Endian Wavestriver. I haven't painted a mini for Mr. Wavestrider yet. Um, I will have one of those up very soon. What does Seraph normally look like? I can help you there. If you'll bear with me a moment, I can show you Seraph's Mini. It's, it's on the website, of course, if you're listening to this audio. You can go to my website, onlydraven.com, and you will find a page or link at the top to a page that says Characters. If you go there, you will find all of the miniatures that I've painted to represent, digitally painted, let me clarify, for all of the characters that I've introduced. Uh, well, most of the characters I've introduced. I don't have them all up there, but most of them. I have a few I need to still get up there. But uh, this is what Seraph looks like normally. His hair actually looks cooler. If you see him from the side or the back, from the front, it looks a little weird. But this is what a young Seraph looks like right now. And... It's important to note that if you look at his face, your first thought is that looks more like a kid, right? It definitely has a younger face on him. And that's because he's so long-lived, right? It's going to be a while for a half-elf, half-vampire, half-demon, half-quarter, half-quarter, whatever, to start showing like they've been around for a while. So um, I would go as far as to say that Seraph will look young when Deacon and Mugen are in their 40s. You know what I mean? It's going to take a while for him to actually show some of that. Now, granted, the life you lead can have some effect on that, right? You live a rough life. You Sometimes people look older than they, they are because of the life they've led. But um, that is what 
serif looks like traditionally. I would stress that the bottle in his hand in that picture is the flask where he keeps blood. And the sword is unremarkable. The sword is not important to the character, just a sword. And the note on the ground is actually the letter he got from Dina from Mugen. That was, that was, again, you guys know this. I like to put little sneaky things about the character or upcoming parts of the story you don't know in these. And I don't do it on all of them. But I put that letter there and no one ever asked why is there a letter there. That's Dina's letter. I introduced this picture long before Dina ever sent the letter. So uh, I sometimes like to sneak little things in there that'll mean something later. Turtle says, how can you be a half-orc, half-orc, half-demon? Is he a half-good man? Oh, no. So it's actually half-quarter-quarter. He's half-elf, quarter-demon, quarter-vampire. I just said it wrong a moment ago. I was mocking myself. It minimized him here. <coughs> so his mother is elven, but his father is half-demon, half-vampire. Right? Father's bringing half and a half. Half of an elf. Quarter, quarter, half of what he was would be quarter, quarter. So, half elven, half elven, quarter vampire, quarter demon. Um, the quarter vampire thing is one is you know gives him a lot of the vampire abilities of his father. Uh, the elven, of course, gives some of the abilities of his mother. Although there's very few abilities that Artemis has that wouldn't be superseded by something Draven can do. Um. It's the demon blood that's the concern. Because it's hard for Draven to know what of his abilities are demon and one of them is vampire, right? So he didn't spend a lot of time in the vampire world at first. He has now. He became king for a while there and had to come back. You all know about that. Um, but demon blood can be very different from generation to generation abilities and even physical deformities and such can definitely greatly differ. Uh, you could skip 10 people and then the 11th person grows a tail. You know what I mean? Has the ability to refire, whatever the case may be. Uh, demon blood will very, very hold <coughs> and can hold that inside and then explode later. Um, that's why it's possible for someone 10 generations down the road to be stronger than someone in demon wise that's been around for a very, very long time because it doesn't necessarily mean every generation it gets weaker, whether or not the demon blood wants to kick in and how it does it, that affects that person. Uh, cause he's Draven Arson. That's correct. Yeah. Because he is the son of, or his mother was one race and his father was two. Hmm? Uh, can, there we go. That's the math section of Merge Worlds. Then a lot of deed, <laughs> a lot of answering questions today, which I love. Don't get me wrong. I'm happy to do so. It's just more so than normal. So it's been fun to kind of branch off on those. Uh, all right. So they climb the ladder. Well, two of them climb the ladder. Mugen just hangs on to him. <laughs> Seraphin climbs the ladder with Mugen on his back, and Deacon climbs up after. They make their way up onto the ship. As soon as they arrive up on the ship, there's a whole mess of crew members there with weapons out. And they are told to hand over their swords. And they weren't asked to give over their weapons when they first got on the little ship. But in this one, they're being told to give over their weapons. Seraph's not happy about it. But understands, right? Pirate Lord being protective. 
No, Sarah's not just going to stab him in the face. Got to be careful. So he and Deacon and Mugen take off their weapons. Seraph is quite clear of, I expect to see all of those back in the exact situation with which I'm giving them to you. And Seraph, again, has that way of speaking with just a level of confidence because he just, at this point, everything's taking too long. Everything is taking too long to get back to Dina, and he's not in the best moods. The fact that he's on a pirate ship in the middle of the ocean and this is the person responsible for safety, you can imagine that's very, very unsettling for him. So it's easy for him to be like, I expect that back when we're done. Like, And most people are going to be like, this guy is a little bit too confident. What's this guy know that we don't know? Because you imagine that in the world. You get on there, here's 30 guys here, a crew, because it's a big ship. They're all armed. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to give you my sword, but if it's not here, I'm going to kill you. You know, what? But they turn him over, including his pistol, Mugen's pistol, which... Uh, Looking at it, they'd be like, I don't know exactly, some type of weird crossbow. Like, they've never seen anything like that. Mugen had unloaded it and cleaned it, because being on a ship, he's being extra cautious. Rust and things of that nature. Uh, as well as, the last thing he wanted was to get sick and trip and fall and shoot himself or somebody. You know what I mean? Not to keep it loaded when you're sick and nauseous and tripping all over this small room. It's currently unloaded, so he's not worried someone's going to figure out how to load it. Seraph and Deacon don't know how to load it. They've, they've watched him do it, but it's a little confusing. Someone has a pistol. All right. We'll do this again. Turtle, here you go. That is Mugen. Mugen is the son of Fig, who is a tinker gnome who lives in New Gully, which was basically a New York that was decimated. There's a lot of stuff still in New York. <laughs> post-apocalyptic and using what technology they found and even old books and so on and so forth Fig has figured out how to make a basic flintlock pistol so it's like a blunderbuss pistol yes Fig was the gnome who was part of the original group Moog was the Hayabunk gully dwarf that they took in and then died saving them all. Um, Fig went back to New Gully, which is New York, and inside of a giant dead magic zone, and he became basically king of the gully dwarves. He protects them. And he's been teaching them for the last 20 years how to fight and how to take care of themselves, which is why they now look like they're in a Mad Max movie. That's his son. His son, Mugen, named after Moog, is half gully dwarf, half gnome. Um, and technically, the next of the throne to take over the gullies. And so, um, he was sent with a letter from Dina, because Dina came through that area, and that's how Sarah found out that she was in danger and all that kind of business. And because he was the only one who knows that area at all, uh, Seraph asked him to come be their guide, became one of their the three friends in the group that we're in now. So Mugen is very short. Gully doors are actually taller than gnomes, so he's a little bit taller than the average gnome. Um, but he is just pure muscle, tattoo, bright colored hair, and he has a pistol. And for the record, if you look at the mini I have on screen, he has an old shoe, which represents the technology and the things you'd find in New York, and a letter. Because the letter is what tied him to Sarah. And again, sometimes I put these figures up after I've already introduced it, so the things on the base make sense. 
Sometimes I hide little nuggets of story on the little base of the characters, or sometimes on their belt or something like that. Hide little things in the figure that a keen observer might notice that I don't know why that's there. Keep an eye out for that. <laughs> so yes, Mugen passes that over. They are escorted into the main set of the ship. Now, I should also clarify that when they get on the ship, it is primarily elven at this point. And even the pirate ship is large and elven-looking in design. Um, that's also Fig's hammer. That is correct, Michael. That is correct. Fig gave him his hammer, because it's just a regular hammer in a dead magic zone, but it's a very powerful magical hammer outside. So he's also wielding his father's hammer. Thank you for the reminder, Michael. They're escorted inside. The crew is mostly elven. The ship looks like what you'd expect from an elven ship. Definitely looks different than the human ships <coughs> that you would normally see, that they saw parked in the docks. Because again, they don't have a lot of experience with ships, right? The only city they've ever really been to other than Serenity is Firemoon. Neither one of them have, have an ocean. <clears throat> um... When he was really small, Seraph got a, got to go to Darstopia, but that was through the portal. They may have saw some ships, but not going to imprint on them that much. <coughs> Excuse me, the coughs are coming back. So they're taken in and introduced to Captain Endian Wavestrider. Now, I thought about making a joke that he was wearing two eye patches, but I decided not to go there. <laughs> you walk in. And he's sitting behind a large table. Big, fluffy, comfy chairs. It's a very wealthy-looking ship. You get here in Cal, he lives in comfort in these personal areas. They also noticed the crew was um, wielding mostly elven weapons. The few humans they saw, they only saw elves and humans. Uh, even the humans were wielding elven weapons. Captain Indian Wavestrider. Walk in and you see Captain... Several things are going to jump out to you right off the bat. Number one, he's a little short for an elf. Not horrendously short. He's about 5'2", but that's a little bit short for the average male elf. But he's a little short for an elf. Second of all, absolutely no hair on his head. He's got eyebrows. He's not, no facial hair. He's got eyebrows. And his hat is sitting on the table next to him. They walk in. When you see the top of his head... You can see that the top of his head appears like there was a large amount of burn scar. Not the whole head, but there's a large amount of it that kind of goes off one side and then down the back of his neck, where it looks like there was a very large scarring by either fire, acid, something that would cause that large type of thing. It's not like all gross and blistery and oozing, but it is one of those things that's very obvious right off the bat. Um... Probably someone like that couldn't grow hair in those areas, so they shave the other side, because why just have half a hair? Yeah, yeah, just saying. He also appears to be a bit older when it comes to elves. So if you're to view him by human standards, he looks like he's in his mid to late 50s. That, you know, doesn't seem that old, but for an elf, I mean, that's probably six or 700 years old minimum at that point, right? Elves can live sometimes a couple thousand years, depending on the world they're from and such. Minimum, usually at least a thousand to fifteen. So, elves being long-lived, he's aged. And the, eye, the little small bits of hair he has, eyebrows and stuff, are grayed. Though he doesn't have like wrinkles like he's a thousand years old. He definitely does have the look of, of an older experience. Got some earrings in. 
you know, Kevin Kristoff got some rings on his finger. Um, and he's just sitting there smiling. Good. Now, when I was told that three young men, three boys, really, had asked to speak with me in person, I'll be honest, I was insulted at first. It's not, it's not something that happens every day. But very quickly, I was like, well, okay. And so I asked, were they looking to join the crew? But no, no, you're trying to find a little girl. And I'm not going to lie to you, that bothers me quite a bit. Because I don't like the fact that you know I was involved. So we're going to talk about that here at some point. I don't like to, it to be involved. I was not supposed to be named to anyone. I was a silent assistant in this situation. And I even brought my price down a little bit because of it. So we have a problem. You know way more than you should, and I need to know why. You're Seraph Bloodborne. Mother's Artemis. Your Deacon Firemoon. Your father's a king. Your Well, I'll be honest, I don't know what the hell you are. You're like a gully dwarf or something. But I'll be honest, man, you look like a little You look a little tougher than the average gully dwarf I've come across. I respect that. Now, immediately, Seraph and Deacon are like, because they're like, we didn't say you were Fire Moon. You know what I mean? Man automatically knows who he is. And then he notices that. He goes, yes, I know who you are. You think I would have let you on my ship if I didn't? I've known who Seraph Bloodborne is for a very, very long time. I have had way too many comings and goings with Darsh Fohammer. Not to know who he considers allies and what their families are like. You all live very far away from me. So fortunately, you've never had to be involved in any of our issues. So by saying that, he's saying, yeah, I know all about Darsh and his family, but you were too far away for me to use that against him, you lucky bastards. Because it's not like he's just going to go several thousand miles across land to Serenity. You know, if they lived in Ardwell Paxwell, they might have been kidnapped at this point. So the audacity that the three of you would just walk up and ask to speak to me like you're important, because you're not. I could care less about Firemoon. I have no dealings with him. I could care less about Serenity or your temple. Not that I've got any problem with the light. That I have any problems. Avian? Avian's the god of healing. He's not trying to piss off any gods at this point. Mother's goings-ons have nothing to do with me. And again, I don't know what to say about you. But you are of no importance to me. To be honest, you don't really give me anything that I need. So why in the world should I talk to you? Seraph has thought about that. He's thought about this for a while. Imagine that, right? Like, I'm going to have to talk to this person who wants something. How can I pay for this? Seraph raises his hand up. Looks and he goes, he's like, I'm pulling something out of my shirt. Pirate Lord nods. He reaches in and he pulls up a roll of 
stack of rolled up papers. And he, hand, he hands them up, sets them on, his, on the desk and steps back again. Endian's like, mm -hmm. forward, and he takes them out, unrolls them, and begins reading. These are the letters. The first one that Mugen delivered, and then the one that he got from Wallace back at the other place. The letters from her to him. He takes a moment to read over it, and he's taking his time. He's in no hurry. Occasionally he looks up at them some more. Rolls up and sets them back on the, on the middle of the table. You're important to her, obviously, if these letters are true. Implying that the letters could be fake. And that's all nice. But she's been taken somewhere to be kept safe. Honest, I'm not sure you being there makes her any safer. Walking around with two big targets on you. Prince of a King, and someone else that has enough problems. And by saying that to Seraph, a bit of an implication that he knows Seraph has maybe people looking for him. He seems to know a little bit more about Seraph's troubles than maybe even Seraph does. Two of you near her could only cause more problems. Again, why... People like yourself were not invited to come along the first time. That's another revelation. Does that mean there was a discussion that they reached out to Seraph to ask if he wanted to come? You know what I mean? That's the kind of thing you got to roll around there. Was there talk about this? I mean, how could they do that without telling him and who, her who she really was before this? I mean, that's a lot of stuff going on in there. Seraph and Deacon are not stupid. And Deacon says, Well, you may not have goings-on with my father. You clearly know him. You know that he's a man of great means, as are Sarah's mother and their friends. Whatever the cost is, the price that we have to pay to get the information we need to reach Dina, we'll pay. Not without means. As you know from the letters... My friend here is madly in love with this young man. Has been for years. Feels the same way. I promise you. Whether you help him or not, he's going to find her. It's just better for everyone in between if we help him now. And Seraph gives him a little side eye from that. Because if you think about it, Deacon has just given out a little information of Deacon's thought process that he may never even told Seraph. Hey, he's going to find her. How many people are going to get hurt before he does? Deacon's the conscience. Remember that. Deacon is the one person that has the ability to sometimes calm Seraph down. He's not always successful, but he's better than anyone else. And he knows his friend. But he's a good person. Protector by nature, Deacon is take care of his people. He was raised that way. So you got to wonder in this situation, Deacon has to think, hey, I'm here to help him because he's my friend and I'm here to make sure that innocent people aren't hurt in this. 
Seraph when he has an emotional outburst. Who knows? And Deacon's one of the few people that really know what his, some of his true capabilities and true vices are. I don't know if I should say vices. The fact that he has to drink blood. He's one of the few people that know that. I'm not even sure. He's a, I can tell you they don't. None of the other friends know that. Dina. Or Dina. Dina probably does. Seraph would have told Dina about that. Because he's like, you know, I'll be with you four years and you find out this happens and that's a problem. Likes her too much for that. But Maeve, Artis, Ran, Petal, they don't know that he has to drink. That's not something he does in front of him. It's not something he talks about. Mugen, at this point, does know. Seraph would have explained that. This is something you... I said he hate pulled the bottle out, and I said, don't talk about that yet. They want to talk about the bottle and how he came to that and so on and so forth, but he would know at least a little bit of it. Maybe not all of it. But their friends don't know this. Deacon does. Our Lord leans back and smiles. Ah, a dealing man. I respect that. Wants to make a deal. Interesting. What if I told you I didn't need your money? What if I told you I had all the money I need? Jewels, jewelry, multiple ships in my fleet, weapons and items of great magic power. Nobody says there's nothing your parents could give me. What then? Deacon smiles. He goes, well, if that were true, you'd no longer have a need to be a pirate. You still sail the seas, so there's obviously something you still need. You can imagine the pirate's face goes a little frown like, I don't like you talking like that. Secondly, every man wants something. Every man wants something. Money? What do you want? If it exists... I guarantee you, you'll find it. That's what it's going to take. Pirate Lord smiles even bigger. That is a much more interesting suggestion. It's true. There are things that every man wants. And there is something that I would like to have. I will, I will make you a There is a rock that I would like to have. It's one of many. I just need one of them. <clears throat> I need one red rock. It's almost like a crystal. Looks like a crystal, but it's really a rock. And it's much, much stronger. There'll be large ones there. You won't be able to break those. But there'll be always a few small pieces on the ground. You could get me one or two of those. <clears throat> then yeah. I can tell you where my ship took her. Seraph and Deacon are like, look at each other. And they're like, okay, well, rocks, obviously, value. One of many, so it's not like a magical one of five stones. That's easy. He goes, yes, yes. Now, not going to lie to you. It's going to take you a little bit of time. Traveling several days to the northeast. Sorry, 
<laughs> south southwest of here, completely backwards, to an island. On this island, the only place that these rocks are known to exist. Just need a couple of them. I'll have a ship take you there. You will have to be very careful. Because there are people who, if they catch you, they will not let you go to this island and bring me the rock that I need. There's like, I'll get you your rock. Many as I can get a hold of. So I have to ask if it's something as simple as getting a rock, why do you need me to get it? Indian sits back, he goes, because no one else who's tried has ever survived. No one who's ever walked on this island has made it to the center of the island. In fact, you'll barely get on shore before you'll be attacked by beings of immense power. Beings that, to my knowledge, can't be defeated. You won't be able to defeat them. But I'm told you're fast. And that might be the one thing that gives you an edge over anyone else. You're fast enough. You can avoid them enough to get near the center of the island. Get me the rocks I want. And then somehow make it back to the ship. Without dying, you'll be the first person to ever successfully do There's like... What type of beings guard this? Golems, actually. Red crystal golems. Incredibly powerful. Impervious to any weapon that I've known. And Mugen goes, and if, if you want red rocks, I can paint some rocks for you. I mean, you have paint, I'll paint some red... Deacon's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the pirate looks at him and goes, no, these, red, these, these are special rocks. These aren't just rocks painted red. There's like, we apologize. Is there anything else I should know? Yes, of course. You'll have to avoid the security. It goes around this island, keeping anyone from getting there. My ship can get you close enough to swim to shore. But then it'll have to take off. It can't stay in there long. Because if Darsh finds out you're trying to get onto his island, where no one is allowed to go, he will stop you. Many of you may not have been here for early Merged World stuff, may remember that Darstopia consists of four islands. One island that when they tried to go on it, were immediately chased off by giant red golems. And they could see huge red crystals deeper into the trees. But no one has ever been able to go onto that island second you touch the sand out of the water. These giant golems come out of the trees and will throw rocks, 
and grab a tree and crush you with a tree. Darsh lost several people before he outlawed anyone going on that island. And no one has ever successfully survived being on, other than getting on, seeing them jumping back off. Obviously, there's a few of those. Because I don't know what controls them. I don't know if they're alive. I don't know how they know the second someone steps a foot on that island, but they'll know. They'll come for you. Seraph goes, I accept. I'll get you your rocks. And then you tell me where I can find Dina. Why you helped her to begin with. Pirate leans back and smiles. He goes, I find those terms acceptable. Back my rocks. Question. So this guy knows nobody has survived. How does he know the rocks are even there and of value? Ooh, great question, Turtle. Great question. Which we will address next time. It is 10 minutes after 10, and I try to keep these to two hours now. Back in the day, they'd sometimes go three, three and a half. It was a little bit harder for people to catch up. So it was requested I make them a little bit shorter, which I don't mind doing. But next episode, or next time at least we do this story, which could be next episode. Huh, who knows? Seraph is going to try to go on to Darth's Force, Darsh's Fourth Island, an island that's been existing in Merd's world for years. That the players of Darsh and Mercy and Dandy were always frustrated they could never find a way on the island. So they made it. Darsh, I've mentioned it a few times. They first got the islands. I mentioned it when the uh, Darshtopian games went on that there was security around the island to make sure nobody went there. I, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Mentioned the red crystal golems. So, Endian knows they're there, knows how hard it is to get there. Clearly, he must have tried or had someone try. But he wants some crystals. And he mentioned that there's one of many. Implies there's a bunch on this island. I don't even need them all. Bring me a couple of them. Bring me a couple of them and we're... Seraph agrees. Now, it's going to be a speed-based thing, I'm sure you can imagine. I'm not saying there's not combat and other things they're going to have to deal with. But you can imagine he won't be taking Deacon and Mugen with him. Even with the increased speed and the spells that Deacon can cast on himself, it's, he's just not going to be able to go as fast as Seraph, and Seraph is not going to want to risk Deacon. You can be assured they're going to have conversations about that. Deacon is going to want to go too, but no. Seraph will have to do that on his own. So a few things to talk about. Endian, Wave Strider. Never mentioned before. I can tell you he's been out there for a while, but I haven't had a real good way to work him in. I mean, I knew it was going to work here. I was trying to figure out a way to work him in earlier, and I decided I wouldn't do that. I'd just wait till this day came. Endian, Wave Strider. This is a jerk. It's a pirate, and not a nice pirate. In no way do I want there to be any confusion that he's really a nice guy. He's a savage, evil pirate. But why does he want these rocks? How did he know so much about them, including potentially about more about them than he should even above that? That number three. And why would he get involved in helping Dina? 
right? Why would someone like this? I mean, these guys just offered him a king's fortune. I doubt the Ormanian rebels have as much money access as these guys do. So he didn't do it for money. <clears throat> what was he paid in? Why did he agree to help Dina? Why does he want these rocks? So a couple uh, interesting little things to deal with. Let's see. Michael says he remembers the island too. Excellent. So I want to know what value are these rocks and how does he know what their value? Excellent. I love it when you guys are pondering the deep questions. So next week's episode is back with Behind the Dice. I got to tell you guys, last Behind the Dice episode, one of, I think, the best, if not the best Behind the Dice episode I've ever had. Really engaging. A lot of great people came by, asked a lot of great questions about D&D. We got to cover a lot of topics. So thank you all who came to that as well. Um, Behind the Dice is more of just an AMA where we talk about D&D stuff. Sometimes I work on um, um, different D&D projects and things. Paint minis, something like that, while talking about D&D stuff. So we'd love to have you come by there as well. Um, if you're here today, <laughs> Jaraxxel? No, no. I didn't design him after Jaraxxel. I had a character that was slightly, originally, the drow that Mercy and Dandy just helped. Larian, he was he was originally going to be inspired by Jaraxxel a little bit. I didn't want to take him the same way, but I introduced him to make it seem like he was going to be that way, and then he ended up not being. The rogue thief lord from way back in the day. Jaraxxel's a good character, though. Very good character. Uh, but yes, so, and then two weeks from today, we'll be back with another episode of Merge Worlds. Now, will we be continuing this tale? Or will we be back talking to other friends, Artists Mave and them? I guess we'll have to see, won't we? So, we'll be doing that in two weeks. But for those of you who came by today, thank you very much for coming by and listening to me tell my tales, for asking your questions and listening along. Uh, if you're listening to this later as well, I appreciate anybody checking these out. Um, if you have, it's uh, 10, 15 p.m. Eastern Standard here, Turtle. Um, what else? Oh, yeah. If you haven't already, it would be awesome if you consider hitting the like button. <laughs> it really does help out a channel uh, more than you could probably ever uh, imagine. Uh, it's quick and easy to do. And if you're new here, be sure to hit subscribe so you can hang out with us more often. You can also see the Merged Worlds podcast, or listen to it, on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, the free audio podcast on there as well. Just do a search for Merged Worlds, all one word. You can find links to both of them on my website, onlydraven.com, where you'll also find the ODG store, where you can find some really cool Merged Worlds merchandise if you are interested. Uh, let's see. If you do have iTunes and Spotify, it'd be awesome if you give us a follow on one or both of those. And if you don't have, uh, if you have a moment to spare, it'd be awesome if you'd rate it to all the like the stars or the thumbs up or whatever it is on the podcasting your network. Drop a review. Uh, if you have someone else who you play D and D with, you think might like the story, it would be phenomenal if you wouldn't mind sharing it. Word of mouth is the best way to get these type of things out there. And uh, I just want to share my story with as many people. All right. Uh, that was a correction to a spelling mistake. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> uh, the answer's out there somewhere. Or do we have to wait till next time? Oh, you got to wait till next time. You got to wait till next time. The answers to those questions do not exist publicly at this point. Some of those answers, the original characters, especially the island, what's on it, why they can't get there, and what the, what the columns is. That was something they tried to figure out for a very long time. Every so often it'd pop up an adventure. Hey, did we ever learn anything about the golem? No. 
We're stopping by a mage tower about this quest run. Hey, while we're here, can we ask about the golems? <laughs> Step pop up all the time. It was hilarious. But I'm going to call that a day. Thank you all for coming and hanging out with me. I love getting to share this story with you. It's my favorite thing I get to do uh, as part of this whole Only Draven Gaming project channel thing that I get to do. Uh, so thank you for giving me the opportunity. All right. You folks have yourselves a wonderful evening. And I'll see you again uh, in just a couple weeks for a little bit more Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story adventure. All right? Folks, have yourselves a great night.